Thank you, brothers that went before me, and all that you've heard already. May we be worthy of the company of Humphrey Middleton. Thomas Cranmer is going to have his own standing before the Lord Jesus Christ for the blood that is upon his hands. Who cares that the Catholics burned him, given his role in that nation? But we're thankful to have such illustrious saints that have gone before us, and may they encourage us to live for him in the lives that we have now. Turning your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5 and verse 24. John 5, 24. We are dealing with the confidence that we want to have of eternal life. If you were to stop and think, and your flesh, the world, and the devil keeps you from doing much of it, we are all racing to our appointment of death, and after that, the judgment. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Funerals are a good thing because it makes us think about the end of all flesh and where we are headed and what is going to happen to each and every one of us. As I wrote recently in a proverb commentary, there is plenty of room in that inn for you. When it's your turn, they're not going to be full, so to turn you away, because you are going to fall into the grave and be consumed by the worms, and your spirit will meet Almighty God. And it ought to be of great importance to us to think about whether we have eternal life or not. And so, this series of messages. We have come to the section of my study for you in which we are trying to establish that we can have confidence. And so, we want to look at what are called the evangelical graces. And the first one is faith. And then along with that is repentance, which I mentioned and taught you last Lord's Day. And we move into baptism, good works, laying hold of eternal life, and so on. I'm taking you back to John 5.24 for the third or fourth time because I want to remind you about your response to the gospel. Have you believed that is come to terms with the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the King of glory, that He is the Son of God, that He is the only Savior from sin, and that your life is His. King of my life, I crown thee now. Have you crowned the Lord Jesus Christ the King of your life by saying with Saul of Tarsus, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart that He is indeed the Son of God and that you're not sure whether Christopher Columbus ever existed or not, but that you know the Son of God, the Son of David, walked this planet for 33 and a half years and now sits at the right hand of God and that He is Lord of all and that you give Him your body, soul, and spirit? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ? John chapter 5 and verse 24 tells us this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. A person that hears the gospel and believes the gospel record about the Lord Jesus Christ personally, 
laying hold of Him by faith, embracing Him in love, and committing a life to Him of service, that person is in possession of everlasting life. He hath everlasting life. He shall not come into condemnation, that is the day of judgment that follows our death. But He is past from death into life. He is already past from death into life. He's already been born again. He's in possession of eternal life. And He'll not be judged in the great day of judgment. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the evidence of that fact. We looked at it from many different scriptures, but I want to keep reminding you that we are not of those that believe, that teach. We have to believe in order to be born again. We have to believe in Christ and His teachings or the gospel of Christ in order to be passed from death into life, but because we already are passed from death into life. No man in an unregenerate natural state has any interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual things of Him and His kingdom are entirely foolish, and He will reject them. The Bible teaches all of that plainly. We then come to repentance, which in the Bible is closely connected to faith. Don't tell me that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ if you're unwilling to repudiate your sins and turn with your whole heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The devils believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The devils confess with their mouths the Lord Jesus. Don't tell me about Romans 10, verses 9 and 13, unless you can explain it in context and comparing it with everything else the New Testament teaches. Don't you run to that text thinking that you can do what a devil does and that is going to save you. If you ever confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead, God has already regenerated you. The devils do the same, but they are not regenerated because they don't repent. The difference that we can make from a devilish faith and a true faith is to repent of our sins and to turn to Christ and to live a righteous life. Look at Jeremiah chapter... 16 with me for a moment to see that the repentance I taught you last Lord's Day had been prophesied in the Scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 16. What I taught you last Lord's Day was very important. And that's for us to appreciate the important role that repentance has and that God has to give repentance. So if you have turned from your idols to serve the living God, as it is said of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, it is evidence that God has done a work in you. Because to put away sin and to love righteousness, to get rid of ungodliness and to deny yourself, proves a work of grace already done. You cannot do such a thing in order to initiate a work of grace. The work of grace has already been done for you to do such a thing. And thank you, Lord, for that. Look at this prophecy. Jeremiah 16, verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles, oh yes, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, 
and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for prophesying that Gentiles would repent and repudiate the religion of their fathers and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and that the Lord Jehovah is the only living and true God. We now come to baptism. Let's look at Mark chapter 16, a text that's often overlooked by Baptists but is greatly loved by Campbellites or those who call themselves the churches of Christ. Mark 16 and verse 16. Water baptism is closely connected to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the verse. Of course, you if you grew up a Baptist like I did, you hardly ever heard verse 16 because verse 15 was really all they wanted. And so in Mark 16, 15, it says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But look at what 16 says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. There's no necessity to say, But he that believeth not and is baptized not shall be damned. Because if you don't believe, then you can't even reach the second condition, and that is of baptism. So only the first one is mentioned in the second clause. The first clause is what I want you to look at. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Do we believe that baptism saves? Well, we have to if we're going to believe the Bible. But we better understand what we mean by that when we say baptism saves. We better understand what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now this is not the only verse like this in the Bible. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 Peter told those in the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, and you shall receive, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Ananias came into the house where Saul of Tarsus was saying, and said to him, And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 it says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 27 it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Uh Uh-oh. We just found five verses in the Bible that tell us that baptism saves us. And of course... If you were really looking for water in the Bible, you would go to John chapter 3 and verse 5, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now we know that in John 3, 5, there isn't any real water there, because the water there is the Holy Ghost that is described in John chapter 7 and Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. It's the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God. But So we don't go there, but they do. I'll bet if you looked at John 3, 5 in your Bibles, and then you looked for a cross-reference for that that word water, you're going to get Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized, even though there's no baptism in John 3, 5. That's because there have been so-called Protestants tampering with our Bibles. 
by putting the cross-references that we have in them and trying to connect baptism to regeneration, which we totally deny. By the time you get to baptism, it's far too late for you to be born again. You had to be born again before you believe the gospel. You have to believe the gospel before you can be baptized. There's an order in the Bible. And it's called the three B's. It's birth, belief, and baptism. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a very pleasant hour with Elder Sonny Piles of the Primitive Baptist from Graham, Texas, as he preached a message to me that was recorded on the Internet called the three B's of the gospel. And I enjoyed that. You know, he started off by talking about Beethoven, Bach, and Brahm as the three B's of classical music. And then he moved to the three B's of the gospel. But it's amazing to think about the three B's of the gospel. Now let's just reverse them. Baptism, birth, and belief. When you think about the churches that call themselves Christians, it's how they line up those three B's that make a huge difference. Some start off with baptism. So they, you know, they pour a little water and rub it with a thumb in the form of a cross on the forehead of Catholic little children. So they start with baptism. And depending on what version of Catholic, Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, or other that you're dealing with, you then either have birth coming next, they're born again, or belief at confirmation, then being born again, it's a big mess. Then you've got the Church of Christ, where you've got to believe, be baptized, then you're born again. I mean, it's just creative. What men have done with the three B's of the gospel. What do we believe? What's taught in the Bible. What's plain in the Bible. We have to be birthed first. We have to be born again first. Then we believe. Then we get baptized. Thank you, Lord. But there's two billion Christians on earth today, and there's less than 100 million that believe that. Less than 5% of those that call themselves Christians believe the proper order of birth, belief, baptism. The vast majority have baptism first, then birth, then belief. Thank you, Lord. So when we see a verse like this, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There's a salvation that has already taken place first. And it's the, what be? The birth. We've already been born again in order to believe. And you've got to believe in order to be baptized. But now there's a salvation that's coming forth. So what salvation is that? In the great day of judgment, a person that has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and has been baptized in Jesus' name, shall be saved in that great day, because he's showing the evidence of the birth that took place before he believed and was baptized. And the birth is the evidence that before the world began, he was chosen in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. That is the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the proper order of it. When we look at that verse, it shouldn't move us at all. He that believeth and is baptized. We don't believe and get baptized in order to be birthed, we're birthed first. Because John said that our new birth or being born again or becoming the sons of God, all things are, all those are synonyms. 
or being regenerated is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God births us. The three B's of the gospel. Do you think you can remember that? And, And go home and do a Google search on Christian denominations. And just look at a few of them and see what order they have the three B's in. See how many of them start with baptism. Whenever I am studying and come upon some of these famous baby sprinklers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and others. I'm mentioning two names that you would be very familiar with. And your flesh trembles a little bit and you think, I'm going against John Calvin and Martin Luther. Well, thank you, brethren. (laughs) My flesh is not too weak, but once in a while it trembles a little. I, I love to let the Word of God remind me that those great men, as the world calls them, couldn't even figure out the doctrine of baptism. They couldn't even come close to figuring out the doctrine of baptism. Neither of them were ever baptized, and neither of them were ever ordained. Because they considered their Catholic sprinkling a legitimate baptism, and their Catholic ordination as priests and monks sufficient. Thank you, Lord. This is easy. All I want to do is compare myself to John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Apostle Paul, and his companion apostles. And let us stick with Holy Scripture. Water baptism. Okay, we need to steer between the ditches of the Campbellites. The Campbellites, the followers of Thomas and Alexander Campbell of the mid-1800s, that came up with the idea that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. They also came up with the idea that you can lose your salvation. They were just rank Arminians. A true Arminian believes that you can lose your salvation whenever you sin. So you need to confess your sins every day because in case you died after you sin, before you confess that sin, you're on your way to hell. That's a true Arminian. We use the term broader than that to bring in all those that believe in decisional salvation today. We steer between the ditches because that's a ditch that we're not going to get into, but we want to steer between the ditches of the Baptists who are afraid of this verse. Most Baptists are petrified by this verse because they don't know what it means. Because whenever they see the word saved, that means to get born again. So when it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, they don't want to deal with that verse because that verse makes them look like a Campbellite. It makes them look like the churches of Christ. makes them look like the Catholics that you have to be baptized in order to be born again. But we already understand that, don't we? Can we just move on? Birth, belief, baptism. Thank you, Lord. The three B's. You can forget Brahms, Bach, and Beethoven. I appreciated the old man from, and I mean that very respectfully, the old man from Texas. He's in his mid-80s now. He took no, pul- he took no Bible into the pulpit. His photographic memory might be a little dulled, but I still enjoyed it as he was able to throw 20, 30, 40 verses in their proper place about the three B's of the gospel. I'm thankful that, you know, there are some that know that order. There's very few that know that order. Most Baptists have the order this way. 
believe, birthed, baptized. You believe the gospel. That causes you to be born again. Then, you know, if you feel like it, you can get baptized. Now, the reason I said that is, and I can't remember what I've written you already, the fastest growing church in this state only baptizes one half of all those that they say got saved at their church. What in the world are they doing? The text says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They are those that believe and teach that all you have to do is believe in order to be saved. But the text says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They are inconsistent heretics. And I would love to help them be consistent heretics if they don't want the truth. The truth is, you're born again first, then you believe, then you're baptized. The eunuch, that is the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, saw that oasis of water. And when in Jerusalem, he had seen baptisms because there were a lot of baptisms going on in Jerusalem. And he said to Philip, see, here is water. Look at it. In God's providence, He's brought us to an oasis. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, with all thine heart thou mayest. So belief and baptism are closely connected together. And Peter said, On the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. So baptism is connected with repentance. Baptism is the symbolic demonstration of your faith. Because baptism tells the Lord, because remember, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism tells God that you believe Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's one of the pictures of burial and resurrection in baptism. The second picture is, I'm burying my old man to rise to walk in newness of life. The third picture is that even if I were to die and my body is laid to rest in a cemetery, I have hope because Jesus Christ is coming back and will resurrect my body from the ground. So that ordinance of baptism that God's given us is so special, it is a picture of burial and resurrection, but there's three aspects to it. Jesus' burial and resurrection our burial and resurrection, and our future resurrection of our body. Praise the Lord for that. And it's closely connected to repentance. When John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea, preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, repent, what did he do about that? How did you show your repentance? You were baptized by John the Baptist. And the Lord Jesus Christ even was baptized by John the Baptist. We could say a whole lot more about baptism, and you know that, but we don't need to. If you want the confidence of eternal life, you want to be baptized. If you believe, like I have described, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you don't want to be baptized, it is either ignorance of what the Bible teaches, or you are in rebellion, and there is no evidence of eternal life in you. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you want to give God the good answer of your conscience or the answer of your good conscience toward Him by what Jesus Christ has done for you. Why wouldn't you want to do that? 
It's the visible, outward demonstration that you believe God sent His Son who laid down His life, who rose again, who's at the right hand of God, who's now calling you to lay down your life, to rise again, and in the great day of resurrection, who will bring your body out of the ground. It is a statement of so much. Why don't you want to make it? Lord, help us. Oh, we want to make that statement and show the Lord that our faith truly believes and that our repentance is sincere as we bury our old man to rise to walk in newness of life. Being a fool for Jesus is a good test. You know, I love to compare the doctrine or the ordinance of baptism with Naaman having his leprosy cured in Second Kings chapter 5 when the Syrian captain of the host came to the prophet Elisha. He brought gold and silver and fancy clothing because he was willing to pay to have his leprosy taken away. But the man of God wouldn't even come to the door to meet him. And so that provoked him and irritated him. And then the word came to him by the servant, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. Naaman didn't want to do that. But his servants prevailed. His servants prevailed by saying, you would have paid a great price This is free. Why wouldn't you do this? And so he dipped and he dipped and he dipped seven times and his leprosy disappeared. And so we are fools for Jesus' sake. Yes, baptism looks foolish to the world. That is why 95% of those that call themselves Christians don't believe in immersion. But oh, we love the doctrine of immersion and so did Humphrey Middleton. And we're thankful to be in his company though he's already resting from his labors. And we have a few more labors and we'll be resting. Okay, let's come to good works. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins. We are baptized. And when you're baptized, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that will increase your confidence and assurance of eternal life. I should spend a minute on that, although I already did, didn't I? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 are one of the places in your Bible that teach that. If you're not baptized, because it's the gift of the Holy Ghost. When we get the gift of the Holy Ghost, we don't speak in tongues. We get the presence of the Holy Spirit in a vibrant way that ministers to us. They got a visible demonstration because there was an outpouring for 40 years of the Holy Spirit. We don't get that visible demonstration, but we still get the Holy Ghost. Here, in Ephesians chapter 1, it's only going to mention faith. But in other places, like Acts chapter 2, it's going to mention baptism. So that if a person believes, but they refuse baptism, there is already a quenching and grieving of the Holy Spirit in their lives from the full ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is to give you assurance of eternal life. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, baptism is not mentioned here. It's assumed here by comparing it with other passages that speak about receiving the Holy Spirit of promise. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. That faith that is there described in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, though it doesn't mention repentance, includes repentance. 
Though it doesn't mention baptism, includes baptism, because when you read the whole New Testament, those three are inseparable for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon a person. Repent and be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, is the New Testament promise. The gift of the Holy Ghost is not the gifts of the Holy Ghost. It's the gift of the Holy Ghost, which Jesus had promised, which God had promised Jesus, which was poured out after the day of Pentecost. Let's move on to good works. What are good works? Good works are acts of love and righteousness. Love or righteousness. But true love is righteousness, and righteousness includes love. They're acts of love and righteousness taught by the Holy Spirit in the Bible that a saved person does to please God and fulfill his existence as a child of God in the world. That's my definition of good works by looking at the Word of God. A faithful minister will stress the importance of good works. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You believe the gospel of Jesus Christ by embracing Jesus Christ in love and humility and service to Him. You repent of your sins, repudiating them, and turn to live a righteous life that He has prescribed. You are baptized in His name, giving the answer of a good conscience toward God. You then bring forth the good works that are described in the New Testament. We are not teaching at all the keeping of Moses' law or Moses' commandments, for that is an entirely different system of justification. We are teaching the good works of the gospel. Titus chapter 2. Look at just a few references here in Titus. Remember, Titus is a pastoral epistle, meaning Paul wrote these words to another minister to guide him as to what ought to be the emphasis of his ministry. Titus 2.7 In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. The entire chapter, Titus chapter 2, is all about good works. What old men should do, what old women should do, what young women should do, what young men should do, what ministers should do, and what servants should do, and then what they all should do. But look at verse 7. It says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. So a minister should be an example or a pattern of good works. Verse 14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Not just doing good works, but zealous of them, is what is said here. For those that Jesus Christ died for, for those that have learned about salvation, verse 11. For those that are living a godly life, verse 12. For those that Jesus Christ is coming for, verse 13. They are zealous of good works. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. This is a faithful saying, Titus. And and I will, it's my will, it's my desire, it's my choice, it's my order for the execution of your office that you affirm these things constantly. That you constantly be pressing this matter upon the saints that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Don't tell me about your faith in Jesus if you're not bringing forth the works of Jesus, if you're not showing the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not conforming to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that they which had believed in God might be careful about this matter. This is something you should be worried about. You should be examining yourselves to see whether you're in the faith or not. To see whether you're a reprobate or not. By maintaining good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Need I say any more? These are my marching orders. This is my manual. Right here. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care if someone says that I'm adding legalism to the finished work of Christ. This is what the Word of God teaches. This is a pastoral epistle. This is what I preach. And so I have a section on good works. And I have preached good works before. And I emphasize good works because without them your faith is no better than a devil's. Chapter 3 and verse 14, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. And those are primarily professional good works, that the saints of God should be known for diligent work at their professions for necessary uses. But notice, maintain good works, even on the job. You can do good works to the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't the Bible teach us that when you go to work, you're not to be men-pleasers? You're not to be working for the eyes of men, but you're to be doing it as unto the Lord. You can serve the Lord Christ on your job by doing it well, as unto Him. Then it doesn't matter whether the boss is around or not. You know, there's an expression in our country that says when the cat's away, the mice will play. Because when the boss is gone, employees back off their diligence and effort But you know, our master is always present, so we should always be working hard. And what a difference it can make even in the workplace. This is the emphasis on good works, and so much more could be said about it. A faithful minister is going to stress the importance of good works. You've seen that if you're going to believe on Jesus or believe on God, then you need to bring forth works. Good works are the changed life of a true believer. Where do I turn you? Is it to the first 20 verses of Matthew 5? Is it to the Beatitudes and what follows? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorif- Nothing comes toward us. It's all heavenward. We are the servants of the Most High God. That's why we do what we do. We're not doing it for any praise. We're sinners. We're ugly sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we do, we do for the glory of God. But it's called good works in Matthew chapter 5 and so many other places could be used. Turn to Acts chapter 9 and let's grab a woman there that we don't refer to very often, but who deserves mention right now. She's known by two names in the Bible, Tabitha and Dorcas. Acts chapter 9 and verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And they sent to to Joppa for Peter, And they desired him to come, and he came. In verse 39, when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. While she was with them, while she was alive, before she went to heaven, she made coats and garments for other widows. This was a woman 
that shows that she was a child of God on her way to heaven because she was concerned and interested in helping other believers. She didn't live a selfish life. She served others. But notice that it's called, in verse 36, full of good works. See, the Lord recognizes good works. Our good works do not get us to heaven. Our good works don't earn heaven for us. We don't try to have good works outweighing our bad works in order to get into heaven in the great day of judgment. All of our works are as filthy rags compared to the holiness of our God. But God sanctifies our works through the Lord Jesus Christ when they are done by faith in Christ. And they are recognized by God. The sheep will be put on the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goats will be put on the left And I know the name of one sheep at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, and her name is Dorcas. And she is there because of her alms deeds. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to them, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And remember, she clothed him. She's going to say to her Lord, Lord, when did I ever clothe you? And he's going to say to her, when you did, when you made those garments and coats for the least of these, my brethren, the widows at Lydda. This is the word of the Lord to us about good works. For we are his workmanship. There's the first work. That's the causative work. For we are His workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are His workmanship. What kind of work was it? The same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead, it took to change our hearts to want to serve others. Regeneration. Being born again. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's what we're here for. That's what we've been regenerated for for good works, for our lives to be filled with energetic efforts to pleasing God and furthering Christ's kingdom and taking care of our fellow brothers and sisters that are in the kingdom of heaven. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That is our calling as Christians. Works of charity and love. I'm moving to another point here about good works. Works of charity and love prove eternal life more than faith. The devils believe, but the devils don't show love. Let's look at a few examples. You know 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. What's the greatest of the three? Charity. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. There are many places that we could go. I want to emphasize those good works that are based in love. Because after all, don't we have a verse in Galatians 5 and verse 6 that says, circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. Thank you, Paul, for helping us understand that. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42, Whosoever shall give a drink Unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise 
lose his reward, a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple shall not lose his reward. You know, if we back up to verse 40, it says, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. How can you show your love of God? By your treatment of those that are the children of God. Right there. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. I've already referred you to Matthew chapter 25 and the great day of judgment there. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. One of these passages of Scripture that we have referred to over and over again because I don't want you to ever forget it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. These idolaters had been regenerated by the power of God and their lives were greatly changed. And the apostle could say of them in verse 4, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. And on what basis could Paul say that he knew that they were God's elect? Because in verse 3, he said that he remembered without ceasing their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. So their faith changed their lives. Their love involved labor for others, and their hope caused them to patiently endure negative events in their lives. This is the evidence of election. This is what the Bible teaches. It is ridiculous when someone says, well, if you believe in election, how do you know you're one of God's elect? They think when they write me, or when they ask me something like that, that they've really hamstrung me that I don't have an answer for them because they're making the assumption that election isn't really a Bible doctrine. But if you believe the Bible, the Bible tells you exactly how you can know you're elect. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. It's a changed life. It's a whole different worldview. It's a whole different response mechanism to everything that happens. It's a whole new appreciation of relationships of the poor saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the evidence of election. And it's stated clearly in the Bible. It doesn't say anything about making a decision for Jesus. That's what it says. And those are good works. That's why it's called the work of faith. That's why it's called labor, the labor of love. That's why it's called patience, which is enduring the patience of hope. Thank you, Lord. Some of these things you've made so simple for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. My point right now is works of charity and love prove eternal life more than faith. Because the devils believe. Because from last Lord's Day, if you remembered, I took you through the Gospel of John and showed you a number of categories, groups, large crowds of men that believed on Jesus Christ, but it wasn't real faith. So how how can you really know if you're saved and if you have eternal life? Don't look to your faith. Look to your actions. Look to your deeds. Look to your lifestyle. Does it show a changed life? Faith doesn't show a changed life. Faith by itself is dead. It's alone. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's kin to blasphemy to focus on your faith rather than your works, as we'll see before I finish. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work, and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
If you want assurance of eternal life, then by the grace of God that is within you, that has already taught you to love one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you should increase in that love yet more and more. That is exactly what Paul wrote. Paul said, God has taught you, Thessalonians, how to love one another. See, it's His work inside us. He, he works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and we in fear and trembling work that salvation out. He put it in us, we work it out. So, but we are to be increasing in it more and more. So you should be adding more and more to your love of the brethren. Because that's what the Bible teaches. It is one of the strongest evidences of eternal life. It's one of the hardest things for us to do. Because by nature we are lazy. By nature we are selfish. By nature we are proud. When you can love another person, when you can condescend to men of low estate, Romans chapter 12, it shows that though you are not guilty of those things, because God has changed you, Natural men do not do it. When we can love our enemies, we show the work of grace in our hearts. When you can love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully use you, Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48 says, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That is not how we get born again, but that's how we show that we are born again and we are truly the sons of God. Somebody hearing this would very easily say, well, then why in the world did the Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians preach and write so diligently against works and faith only? Because the works there that he was condemning were the works of Moses' law as understood by Jewish legalists who believed that they could justify themselves before God by Moses' commandments. That's why. It, without that context, Paul would blast faith alone as much as James. And we're about to go to James. The Apostle Paul used what happened in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham in order to refute Jewish legalists. Rather than just living in the Spirit, brethren, let's walk in the Spirit. And the Bible tells us how to walk in the Spirit. You put on things like this. Love. I wonder why it starts with love. I wonder where faith is in the mix. Is it even there? Yes, it's there. Love. Because Galatians chapter 5 is faith which worketh by love. Love is emphasized in Galatians chapter 5. So when we get the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, it starts with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. If we just look at those five, that is a changed person. Because it, those things are not natural to us. We are not natural. We, we are not gentle. We are filled with malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, the apostle would say. Thank you, Lord. These things you have made quite simple to us. Don't look to your ritual good works. Look to your gospel good works. When I say ritual good works, I mean like coming to church. Anybody can attend church. That is not much of a good work. Is it something God wants you to do? Most definitely. There's many people, many churchgoers that will be in the lake of fire and there's many preachers that are going to be there as well because they're going to appeal to their preaching and Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. Right. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm leaving good works. I've preached on it before. There's much more that could be said. I want to move on. But if you want to know, if you're one of God's elect, has your life changed? Have you changed from a selfish person to a serving person? 
Have you changed from a proud person to a humble person? Have you changed from a hateful, critical, negative person to a loving, merciful, gracious, and forgiving person? That is only the grace of God that can do that. As measured by the New Testament. Lord, help us. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Right now I want to tell you that you can lay hold of eternal life because that's what the Bible tells you that you can do. You can reach out and grab eternal life for the confidence of your own soul by doing certain things. Verse 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, that seeking after the wealth of this world, described in verses 6-10, through where it says the love of money is the root of all evil. But thou, O man of God, Paul to Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Lay hold of eternal life. Get your hands on it so that it can't get away from you, which is to have your assurance and confidence that you have eternal life. It's by fleeing the things of the world. The world thinks that getting rich is really important. It's fleeing that. It's flushing that. And it's following after things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Those are the evidences of eternal life by fleeing the one and following the other and putting up a good fight in the matter you can lay hold on eternal life. Now this unique expression is used twice in this chapter. Because in verse 17, Paul told Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. This is how the rich should view their money. That they do good. That they be rich in good works. There's that good works again. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate. And that is not sending emails or text messages. When it says willing to communicate, that is giving money. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. This language is hard for some people to bear because all they can think about is the finished work of Christ. We believe in the finished work of Christ in this church more than any other We believe in the unconditional gift of eternal life by the grace of God through the finished work of Christ, through the spontaneous, monergistic power of the Holy Ghost in regeneration. We do not believe that man's will or man's works are involved as an instrument, as a means, or as a condition for eternal life. However, if you want to know that you have eternal life, and that's what this series, is, series of messages is about, if you want the assurance of eternal life, the Bible tells us you can lay up a good foundation. Now Paul said, other foundation can no man lay, then that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But that is the means of eternal life. The legal means of eternal life. This is the practical way for you to know that you have eternal life. It's a foundation you lay. And it says it as plainly as it could possibly be said, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come by their good works lining up with what Matthew 25 describes about those sheep at his right hand. Being willing to communicate. Being willing to provide clothing. Being willing to provide food. Being willing to visit. 
that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's not how they earn eternal life. Listen, brethren, God has blessed us so abundantly. We see this so clearly. We can see the Lord's part over here completely finished in an unconditional gift of eternal life. And we can see right here that we cannot play games with some little decision. We cannot play games with church membership. We cannot play games with church attendance. We cannot play games with baptism. There needs to be a changed life lived for Jesus Christ to have the full assurance of faith and to have a foundation against the time to come that we may lay hold on eternal life. Turn to James chapter 2. The closer you're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater presence of the Holy Spirit you have in your life because you haven't grieved or quenched Him by your sins, the more you will know that you have eternal life. God will bear witness in your own soul. He will shed abroad His love for you into every corner of your heart and soul. And you can have the confidence that Job had who knew so little about his Redeemer compared to what we know, but he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Is that pretty confident to you? And that's from, that's from way back. That's from Job. David had the same confidence. And we can have that confidence if if we're following the things that I'm outlining to you right now. James chapter 2. I know you read it last evening. Can I quickly go through this? Please, please bear with me. This is a powerful passage of Scripture that God's given us, and I want to get it finished this morning. James chapter 2, in the first 13 verses, the apostle has condemned the Jews to whom he is writing for their partiality in showing respect of persons based on economic level. And he's, he's teaching them to love. Just like we have seen emphasized so much. Verse 8, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. That's what Christians ought to do is to emphasize love. But now some of them were saying, well, I'm a believer. Well, here's what he had to say about them. That wanted to say they were believers, and yet they didn't want to love poor people that came into their assemblies. Listen to this rocket launch. In uh, James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? Is it a yes or a no? It's no. Faith is worthless in comparison to works. Faith is not enough. And so James teaches it. And there is no disagreement between Paul and James if you understand the two different contexts in which they are writing. Without the Jewish legalist context of Romans and Galatians that were chasing Paul his entire ministry, he would blast against faith only as much as James did. Paul despised sola fide as much as James did. Do you know what the word sola fide mean? Faith only. Do you know what this text tells me in James chapter 2 and verse 24? Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by sola fide. The Lord, I love your word. I love your word. Listen. If you've ever spent much time among Arminians, you've seen so many of them go forward and give their hearts to Jesus, something that's not even described in the Bible. In the Bible, there's nothing about going forward. In the Bible, there's nothing about giving your heart to Jesus. But so many of them, and then they go off and live like the world, there's no change in their life. 
And it just makes me sick, and it ought to make you sick, and there's a Bible antidote for it. And one of the antidotes for it is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. The answer to verse 14 is, no, faith can't save them. Here's how ridiculous faith only is. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, my brother, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. For, for a person to be starving and to not have clothes, and for you to say, depart in peace, be warm, be filled. But you don't give them any clothing, and you don't give them any food. I know what you're thinking. That is the height of arrogance. That is the height of cruelty. That is wicked. Uh huh. And that is what it means to say, I'm saved by faith without works. That is what the apostle is teaching. It is just as ridiculous. It is just as cruel. It is just as idiotic. When you read a statement in the Word of God about faith only, like, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I have given you an understanding because God has given us an understanding from His Word that that man was already born again. He was already in possession of eternal life. And that was just the first level of evidence that he would be saved in the great day of judgment. But see, that man immediately began improving by adding the things that I've preached to you today. What did the Philippian jailer do after that? He took Paul and Silas home. He washed their stripes. Straightway he was baptized. How much did he argue about baptism? I need help on the word straightway. He didn't, he didn't need any persuasion about baptism. Paul preached to his family the rest of the night. He fed that man. And then he went, tried to get him out of prison as quickly as he could. His good works. He bang, 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 bang. The apostle starts with the first one because that's all we need at that moment. When you are dealing with a man, you don't start out with good works. You start out with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You add repentance. You add baptism. You add good works. You add lay hold of eternal life. And and Paul did in every case. But when you first meet a man that says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing changes when, when the Ethi- when the Philippian jailer believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing changed in him and nothing changed in heaven. He was already born again. His name was already in the book of life. And that future salvation would be in the great day of judgment. James chapter two, verse 18. Yea, the apostle says, this is ridiculous to think about faith without works. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith. And I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. If you don't have works, and you say you're a believer, prove it. Show me your faith. Well, how do you show faith? I believe. No, I want to see it. I believe. I didn't say I want to hear it. I want to see it. You can't do it. You're you're stuck. You're stuck. Show me that you have eternal life. I believe. I didn't say hear it. Show me. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And see, we're not teaching salvation by works. We're teaching assurance by works. Thou believest that there is one God, 
thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils believe there's one God. Well, you've made progress from your polytheistic religion of the Greeks and the Romans to believe in one God. We're we're thankful for that progress. Thou doest well. The devils also believe in only one God, and they tremble about it. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The fact that you believe in the the monotheistic religion of of the Jews, the fact that you believe in the Lord Jehovah as being the one and only living and true God, the devils also believe the same thing, and they tremble about it, and I don't see much trembling in your life. So what have you accomplished? But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Know that. Will you know that? And then he goes into Abraham. And remember, James is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and he's about to pick up Abraham as the great example. Oh, this is good. Paul always used Abraham as the great example of justification by faith. James uses Abraham as the great example of justification by works. James says what Paul referred to wasn't even fulfilled until he had some works. The event in Abraham's life by which Paul appealed to is Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. The event that James is going to appeal to is Genesis chapter 22. The event that Paul, when he wasn't dealing with Jewish legalists, appealed to was Genesis chapter 12, when by faith Paul when by faith Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans to come into the land of Canaan. I have preached this so many times, but I never want you to forget it. When was Abraham justified? In the eternal counsels of God, when God chose him in Christ Jesus before the world began to be holy and without blame before him in love. That's the eternal phase of his justification. When when were the sins of Abraham fully put away? On the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and he said he finished it. By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. When was that righteousness applied to Abraham to give him a righteous new nature inside? When he was born again sometime in Ur of the Chaldeans. What happened in Genesis chapter 15? He did nothing more than what Phinehas did with the javelin. He did something that pleased God, And God said he counted it as an act of righteousness on the part of Abraham. Paul picked that up because it was a declaration of Abraham's righteousness. Paul used it because Genesis 15.6 is in front of Genesis 17 where circumcision was first taught. Because Genesis 15 is in front of Exodus 20 when the commandments came down from Mount Sinai. Do you understand that? That is why Paul used Genesis 15.6 against the Jewish legalists in Romans and in Galatians to combat Jewish legalists that had put their confidence in circumcision and in Moses' law. Nothing changed in Abraham in Genesis 15.6. Nothing changed inside him. Nothing changed in heaven. God simply said, your belief in such an incredible promise I just made to you is the mark of a righteous man. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was the act of a righteous man. It says the same thing in Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31, when Phinehas went in with his javelin and put it through the two fornicating Israelite and Midianitish woman, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was a mark of a righteous man doing a righteous deed. This is so important if you want to theologically understand your New Testament and reconcile Romans and Galatians with James. See, Martin Luther couldn't do it. 
So he mocked the epistle of James. He said it wasn't inspired. It didn't have proper support to be in the canon of the New Testament. We, we deny that. James is as important as Romans. James is as important as Galatians. And, the, and it sh- you should be able to understand both. It's the context. If Paul was writing to carnal, believing Christians like James was, he would have written the same way as right here. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? What's the answer to that question? That's a rhetorical question. Yes. That's when Abraham was justified by works. And yes, Abraham was justified by works. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Faith was fulfilled. Faith was made complete. Faith is the belief in God that should result in your actions. What's Hebrews 11 all about? By faith they did this. By faith she did that. By faith he did this. By faith she did that. Faith moves. It's the work of faith. Our faith in God should change our lives. Just the mental, and this is to save us from the foolishness of mental assent to the Bible. We want mental assent to the Bible and a whole lot more. We want a passionate love in our heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want a humility that falls before Him and says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then we want to rise up and with the zeal of the apostle, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 23, And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6, that Paul made such a big deal about for his purposes against the Jewish legalists. And he was called the friend of God. But James tells us right here that Genesis 15, 6 couldn't be proven to be valid until Genesis chapter 22, other than God's declaration. When God declares that a man's righteous, that's good enough. But from a standpoint of faith only, it wasn't good enough until he backed it up with works. Verse 24, Ye see then, that means you should be able to draw a conclusion from what I've just given. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The only way you can know that you're one of God's justified elect is by works. Not by faith only. How many people today are going to hear today that I guarantee your eternal life by faith only? All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. The Bible says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Deal with the Scriptures, you people out there that want to foam away with your little sound bites. They have deceived a whole generation to thinking that they're saved when they're not. Lord, have mercy. The Word of God is plain enough if we'll preach the whole thing. Verse 25, likewise also, not just Abraham, but here's a Gentile. Likewise also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? When she had received the messengers, that's another word for spies, and had sent them out another way, that means she lied to her city council and the sheriff that came to the door. Are those men that came into this city, those Israelite men in your house? Oh no, if you hurry... They went that away, and you might be able to catch them. Is that how she gets to heaven? No. Is that the evidence that she's on her way to heaven? Yes. Because against her whole city, against her whole religion, 
She believed that the God of the Israelites was the only true and living God because God had regenerated her and had taught her in her heart so that she knew him. And she stood for him and she risked her life for the lives of two spies. That was an evidence of her justification by good works. So the apostle writes, likewise also, just like Abraham, Rahab showed that she was a righteous and just person. Remember, we're not, I'm not teaching you about how to get saved. I'm teaching you how to have the assurance of eternal life. Can you look at your life and see the changes that God has made? I'm not, you only make them because God made them inside you. The only reason we repudiate sin and turn toward righteousness is because God's given us a new nature. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Have you ever been near someone when they died? And that, that, anim, that animation, the personality, they're, they're alive. I mean, how else do I... You know, the animation of the body parts, the personality of the eyes, the movements, all the bodily instinctive uh, acts that it continues to do while it's alive, and all of a sudden, the spirit out of it is gone, and all it is is clay. It's cold, clammy clay. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith without a changed life is just cold, clammy, dead, worthless, nothing. And so, the Word of God. And so I hope in the effort that I've made, you might be able to also see the difference between what Paul taught. But what we want what we want is the assurance of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in His name. Live up to that baptism with good works in every part of your life and lay hold of eternal life by doing it with zeal and fighting the good fight of faith. Fleeing the things of the world. Following after the things of heaven. And that is the evidence of eternal life. It is so much more than faith only. And the more you do those things that I just listed, the Holy Spirit will witness to your heart that you are a son of God. You will be crying, Abba, Father, with greater intensity and confidence. And His love will be shed abroad in your heart. It is a shame that so many of God's children have been handed a candy cane and never taught the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could be working out their salvation with fear and trembling and receiving in their hearts a blessing of the testimony and witness of the Spirit of God, which they don't have. They haven't even truly met God because they're still trusting their little moment of decision, their little choice for Jesus as their salvation, instead of His completed, finished work in which He will not lose a single one. And the zealous the zeal for good works that we ought to have to prove that we are one of those. May the Lord bless the truth to all of our hearts and our lives. Amen.